Hello, we're back! Where's my axe? I'm hungry! Welcome to Get to Work Hurley, the podcast for anyone who has ever been frustrated by the professional writing life. I am your host, Cameron Hurley, and it has been a little bit since we have chatted. I have had a crazy um, few months, weeks, years, months, <laughs> uh, but things seem to be uh, going fairly well, mostly because I'm eating a lot of vitamin D here in the darkest month of uh, the soul. In this episode, we are going to get down and dirty about money, folks. Money for freelancers, money for authors, asking for what you're worth, saying no to shit you don't want to do, and ensuring you have enough financial freedom to stand up for yourself and have the career that you want. Whew. So once you start signing all these contracts and getting all these deadlines for the career you want, how then can you improve your process so you actually get shit done? Haha, I wish I knew. Folks, I don't have all the answers, but I can share my own process with you as I do hack my own habits to improve how I'm spending my day, uh, including doing podcasts like this. This is really about reconditioning how we react to the cues that lead to bad habits and ensuring we have a work environment conducive to doing our best work. So, Finally, I'll offer some book recs, uh, new upcoming and just read. And I would also just like to thank all of our Patreon backers for continuing to support this podcast at patreon.com forward slash Cameron Hurley. So let's jump right into it. Let's talk about the money. So I talk publicly about money primarily so that newer writers can get a sense of what an established writer is actually making every year. And I'm like, I think, man, the end of next year, I'm going to have a ton of books. I I'm like 10 books in, I think, and seven years in. Uh, next year will be eight. And that's that's not of writing, but that's of writing uh, and publishing. You know, I've been publishing books since 2011. Um, and so all this stuff, right? <laughs> 10, 11 books. Um, last year, most of the money I made was via Patreon for short fiction. And um, here's, here's why I have not quit my, my day job, because royalties, you know, foreign rights, book payments, all of that for last year was $16,000. Um, I'm the breadwinner in the house, so I need to have like the health insurance <laughs> and pay the mortgage. So, and also the $1,500 a month for my drugs that keep me alive. And so, as you can kind of see, that $16,000 would not have done it. So, this is why I encourage everyone to have multiple income streams um, 100 bucks in self pub royalties, a couple grand in short story reprint sales. And I did have 29,000 from Patreon, I think, all bundled all together. It, it kind of just bumps me up into a living wage if I didn't have to, you know, worry about 
health insurance, um, maybe with all of these different income streams, it'd be great. That said, keep in mind that any platform like a Patreon, like an Amazon, I know a lot of people rely on Amazon for self-published book sales for like 99% of their, their living. And anytime you rely on a third party or for such an exclusive part of your income, um, that's bad. <laughs> It's bad because what if it goes away? Patreon could be sold tomorrow, um, and Patreon always has hiccups and things uh, with with a lot of uh, its its um, payments. And uh, I see a lot of folks again relying completely on Amazon for that kind of thing too. And what happens when Amazon changes their algorithm? I remember speaking to a guy who said, "Yeah, like one year." He, as a self-published author, he made $88,000 and the next year he made $3,000 because the algorithm changed. And, you know, I still have a day job. Again, as many income streams as you can get. I have an Etsy store, which again, a couple sales here, here and there, pretty nice to have all these different ways of um, making money. I still take on some freelancing on occasion if it pays well enough. Um, so that's, you know, my writing income itself um, has varied widely from year to year. I think, I think this year, again, this in 2018, um, I probably am going to make 10k just in royalties on Stars or Legion. Um, but next year, like, who knows? Who knows? Um, there could be some, I could make $1,000. I could make no dollars. That probably won't happen. But Again, you can't say, well, this year I made 10 grand, so next year I'll make 10 grand in, you know, for with this XYZ book. Because usually what happens is you make most of your money your first year. Sometimes they don't, like they take off. Um, or like I think uh, <clears throat> Scalzi was saying, I think with Old Man's War, that it's just kind of this perennial seller. I would love to have a perennial seller, right, that made 10K every year. But that is probably not going to happen uh, with any of these books so far. So until I write a classic like The Light Brigade, which is out in 2019. Anyway, so I was talking to some fans in Sweden um, during a coffee clutch, and uh, one of them said how difficult it was for her to talk about money. And she said, talking about money in Sweden is like showing someone your genitals. <laughs> and I laughed because I, I do still find a lot of that attitude here in the U.S. Um, and, and I have encountered it online. Um when I talk about money, people uh, are like, oh, why are you even complaining that you only make 16000 I wish I made 16000 There's very much this thing um, in the U.S. where they don't want you to talk about money um, because somehow we're all expected to just get through life without money. It's really strange because we all... In the U.S., we all have to pretend that we're making the same amount of money and that none of us is struggling. And if we aren't struggling, then we pretend like we are. And we liken our experiences to, you know, less fortunate friends' experiences in sort of like this effort to pretend that we're all the same um, when we're not. Because <laughs> the U.S. likes to pretend it's a classless society, which is super hilarious on so many levels. Um, but, you know, not talking about money is, is taboo also, of course. Uh, it, it's it's in service to corporations, um, and again into this this idea that somehow you know Elon Musk is like an everyman or something, um, when in fact power does corrupt absolutely, and they have done these um, really interesting studies about how you know getting richer actually makes you less empathetic, which I think is fascinating. Um, 
but there's a lot of stuff, right, bubbled up into that. And corporations um, don't want us to talk about money because if we never talk about our salaries at work, then we'll never know who's being paid more than we are for doing the same job. Um, knowing what everyone else is getting paid is a huge bargaining chip. Like I, um, I'll never forget. I've I've talked to many other writers, uh, and one of them gave me this great piece of advice where she said, you know, Cameron, um, never freelance for less than sixty dollars an hour. I would never accept that. Uh, and I was like blown away when she told me that because I was thinking of charging like twenty five, thirty dollars an hour. Um, now I'm up to charging anywhere from ninety to one hundred and twenty five, depending on the job. Um, but knowing that baseline was incredibly important because it meant I didn't undervalue my work. Um, and we have found this, right? Um, this is the same when it comes to writing, novels, freelancing. So um, in fact, that, that gets us uh, right on into our, our first question. Um, Jenny actually asked, what does one decide what, how to charge for freelance work? Um, again, uh, that, that piece of advice that I got, never, never less than $60 an hour for copywriting. Um, I, again, it really depends. Do you know, do a lot of places pay 15 or 20 an hour for that? Oh yeah. Um, I would avoid them unless you're trying to build your resume, right? You're just trying to, you know, put something onto your, um, your CV, um, because places that pay that low don't really respect you or your work and you're going to be interchangeable. It's also probably not going to be very good work. It's probably going to be really shitty to do and eat your soul. I was actually offered a gig for like $50 for a 500 word post. And there was, it was quite a lot of posts. It was like 60 posts. So, you know, oh, you could make a little bit of money. But when I did the math on how long that would take me, it, it just didn't make sense to do it. So I asked, you know, Hey, I, I need a hundred dollars per cause that's, it, it takes me an hour. And that's, that's, that's best case, right? A 500 word post it takes me an hour of sitting in front of, you know, half an hour to read about it and half an hour to write it. Um, that, that was all I could do. And I, and they declined and that was fine because it was shitty work. And for me, um, I have to be paid, <laughs> I have to be paid a certain amount, uh, for that kind of soulless work to be worth it for me. <laughs> uh, did I feel bad? about not getting that job? No, because again, I have all these other income streams. And I understood how grinding that work would be. Um, because I've done that kind of work. Uh, and I decided that the dollar figure um, just was was not worth it. So um, and again, I, uh, I value my experiences. At this point, uh, I know exactly how good I am at my job. And why would I work for less if I don't have to? So, and of course, you know, it's, it's the don't have to part that gives me the leverage. Uh, I'm asked all the time to write resumes because I'm very good at them. I, I think I've, I've always, anytime I've done a resume, again, I, people, these are for people who have been sending out resumes forever and weren't even getting callbacks. Um, every single time that I've done somebody's resume, they got multiple callbacks and multiple interviews out of them um, because uh, they're uh, good. <laughs> good, but I despise writing them. I hate it. Again, it's grinding work to me. So I tell people my rate for a resume is $375. It's not worth it to me for $50. Again, they all want to pay you $50 or $75. And I'm like, well, do you want to call back or not? Uh, I could be spending those two hours, three hours doing work that earns me far more that I also enjoy way more. Um, and also, again, if people, oh, how could you charge so much? I want to give a shout out to the lady I saw on Twitter 
who is charging and making good money doing this, charging $950 an hour to write for people's Instagram accounts. Holy fuck. Like she knows her worth. She knows it is worth it and that people will pay it if it is worth it. Um, a lot of these Instagram accounts, again, this is people's living. Talk about another um, income stream. I actually follow um, a uh, someone online, like a fitness person online, and uh, she has over a million followers. And she runs this thing called Diet Bet. And she gets like 10% of the pot from Diet Bet. And she advertises it on Instagram. Her pots per month are something anywhere from 100000 to $200,000, which means she's making ten to $20,000 a month. Um using Instagram to, to pull people onto this other place to make money, right? Um, $950 an hour absolutely is going to be worth it when you're making, when, especially when, when you're making so much money um, on, uh, uh, on these, through these channels. So charge what you're worth, understand your worth, um, and understand that, yeah, sure, of course, we're all going to, to do some work to build our CV to start. But I do think that people also take you more seriously when they pay you more money. Um, I have found that quite a bit is that, you know, you get what you pay for. And if they're paying you $15 an hour, they're going to treat you uh, like you are a writer at $15 an hour. Um, so charge $100 an hour and they will treat you like someone who, again, whose time is valuable. If you don't value your time, why should anyone else? So on Twitter, uh, Marina Berlin asked, how much negotiation is really possible uh, within publishing contracts, freelance and otherwise? Um, the short answer, a lot more than you think. Freelancing contracts, short story contracts, novel contracts can be negotiated uh, quite a bit. Your freelancing rate, again, if we're talking freelancing rate, how much up front, a kill fee, uh, which is a fee they would pay you uh, if they contract you to write a story, but then they never run it. And always, 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 what particular rights you are signing away can be negotiated. I, I know that there's a boilerplate, there's lots of uh, companies trained to do boilerplate contracts that literally like are asking for the movie rights and for the, <laughs> for the audio rights and for the... Um, in perpetuity, you know, rights for things, you know, technologies that have never, that may come to be. Um, and especially for short pieces and stuff like that, it's like, well, fuck you. And I, a lot of times I'll just cross things out um, and I'll send it back and be like, if this is fine with you, then let's, let's do it. Um, for the real question really is what is a deal breaker for you in a contract? Um, what would they insist on that you just can't live with? Um, my agent has negotiated like all sorts of things like earn out bonuses, uh, increases in royalty rates, which hardly ever happens, but she has negotiated that. Um, and she's neutered some of the non-compete clauses, which are bullshit and should die in a fire. But, um, we were able to negotiate those. So they're, cause they, they're, some of these, they say they don't want you to do, to put out any other work within six months of a release from them. And it's like, go fuck yourself, especially when they're paying you are paying you, you know, ten, twenty thousand dollars, and it's like, well, how the fuck am I supposed to make a living? Again, fifteen percent goes to your agent. You pay like thirty percent in taxes. How, how are you going to make money having one book coming out every six months and not being able to put out anything else? Um, a lot of people who are professional writers who are making, you know, money um, only, you know, solely through novels and, and short fiction. Those people are putting out three, four, five, or more books a year. They can't have non-complete clauses. It's stupid. Anyway, 
Uh, and of course, and, and every first advance offer can generally be negotiated up because they're going to start at the absolute bottom, but it really depends on how much leverage you have. And this is why you want multiple offers for uh, your work. You want people to be really excited about it because you can get them to compete for the best deal. Uh, if, if they're the only offer, it's kind of like, well, you have less leverage, so I mean, you can try, but at the end of the day, they can you know, just be like, well, take it or leave it. That's, that's what we can do. Um, again, that's why you, what you, I, what you really want is like an auction when like six houses want it and everybody gets all excited about it. And then they pay you a bunch of money. Um, that's great. Uh, uh even just two publishers is great. Cause usually it's just like, you know, your agent goes, okay, guys, you know, what's the best deal and, you know, send us the offers and, um, you know, I was I was in that position once uh, where, yeah, it was two publishers that really wanted it and they gave their best offer. So um, that was cool. But um, but yeah, so so a lot depends on that. And, and it's also important to know that and, and I we get really um, obsessed about advances because they have uh, they could have a lot of zeros. They usually don't. Um, but while it's important because it does on some level give the publisher more skin in the game. Uh, and more reason than to support you and actually put money into publicity. But it is not necessarily the biggest thing you should be watching out for. Um, publishing contract knowledge is super important. And it's why I strongly recommend that anyone who wants to have a traditional publishing deal gets an agent, not just a lawyer. Because good agents, um, they can up your royalty rates. They have um, you know, which, which again, will add up in the long term and remove a lot of terrible rights grab clauses. And they have more leverage because good agents also represent, come with agencies that represent a lot more clients. Whereas if you just have a lawyer, they are only representing you just for the one time. And so there's no impetus for the publisher to treat them, you know, to, to, to maybe, maybe let something slide just this one time because maybe they'll make it up to them later by giving them, you know, sending them a book from, you know, some other power author or something. So again, you, you know, you, the, the relationships in publishing are, are super important. Um, and I, I've seen my agents back and forth with, you know, the contracts department and it's pretty epic. Um, not something that I'm terribly good at myself. <laughs> uh, I, again, I, I don't mind with short story contracts. I will, I will, you know, make adjustments and things. Um, but man, yeah, she, 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 she goes to bat, which is she, she earns her fifteen percent. Let me tell you. Uh, so also, Rachel Aaron asked, um, "Why are publishers paying so much less for advances these days?" Ha ha. You'd think they'd be upping rates to compete with self pub. I have my own theories, but I'd like to hear your thoughts. So, all right. The squeezing out of mid-list writers is part of this general trend we're seeing in the country itself uh, with the reduction of the middle class. And there are lots of reasons for this, um, you know, again, in, in the wider world and today um, in publishing. Again, all of, the, all of these systems are interconnected. People ask about, oh, what about, you know, sexism and science fiction? Well, there's sexism in the wider world. These are all microcosms. So... Uh, you know, 5k and 10k deals. Um, there's like a lot of those. And then there's like, wow, some six and seven figure deals, um, and, and very little in between. It's very frustrating. Uh, I did, I really started to notice this 
probably after the 2008 publishing crash, I think prior to that, I, I knew some folks who were getting some, some pretty decent, you know, um, you know, 50, I was seeing some 50 K 70 K, um, deals, um, prior to that for books that I was like, what? And again, that might've been some of the problem, but, uh, a lot of these publishers have been gobbled up by larger corporations and those corporations, uh, just aren't about long-term thinking. It's about short-term profit. Again, corporate corporations are the problem. So if you're, if you're assigning a writer to develop their career and invest in it over 10 years, you're expecting to get a return on that advance, you know, five or 10 years in five or 10 years, right? So you can say, Hey, I'm going to buy this book from this author for 50 grand. Um, knowing that we are developing this author and so we're going to have once once they do mature and kick off we're going to have their whole backlist and it's going to be uh, a really good investment for us right um but now people have told me like you're expected to earn out advances in like a year or two and which is sort of ridiculous because I don't know. That's, that's a small advance to me. Um, but for so many writers now, even earning out a small advance isn't even enough to guarantee another deal, which sucks. Publishers really want quick hits. They want fast earners. And they forget things <laughs> that, you know, like Ursula Le Guin, as far as I know, was never a bestseller. Um, but she has an extraordinary body of work that's going to last forever, right? So whoever, you know, got on board and was like, yeah, well, let's publish some Le Guin. It's going to make money forever, but it's all about short-term thinking. So, uh, and again, as 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 an author who's earned out like all of my advances in just a couple of years, uh, I do find this whole short-term thinking to be bullshit. Obviously, writers need to have a good idea of their sales numbers, of their advances, of royalties, because once you actually have some hard data on your side, you can use that data for leverage. Um, I know so many authors who know who don't spend a lot of time on on the business part of this business <laughs> and that can hurt you because again it's that whole thing you have to know your worth you have to know your worth in publishing and in red life all of these things so um it, let's take a book like Stars of Legion so Stars of Legion I got a $20,000 advance for that book and it not only earned out that advance in less than a year, but by the 18-month mark, it had made another $10,000 in royalties. So looking at that, okay, it's earned, you know, basically $30,000 in about a year, a little over a year. And I'm like, okay, wow, then I should be making like 60 to 70K per book, right? Which is what a book like that might earn in five to eight years. I think the God's War books have probably made that collectively in, in about that time. Um, that's just math. Uh, why would I, I mean, if I'm earning back $20,000 in a year, uh, again, what that's, that it goes back to that whole thing with a publisher with, with no skin in the game. Um, the more that they invest in me, uh, the more that you know, the better the books are going to do. It's it's a very chicken egg situation. Um, so I, you know, I was like, all right, I should be making sixty, seventy k per book. I'm under advanced, uh, and I've known that for a long time. I talked to other authors, and they're like, oh, I know people selling way less than you who are getting, you know, really great advances um, that are far more than that. 
And, uh, yeah, like it annoys the crap out of me. Um, but seeing those numbers and having those numbers gave me the confidence to demand more. And I'm starting to say no to a lot more deals, including this um, movie agreement recently, because I didn't feel I was being offered what it was worth. Um, I've talked to other writers and I have confidence in my work and how it can perform. And and I, I think to some extent you really do need to have that that confidence. I mean, I, I've always had some confidence, but the numbers help. <laughs> the numbers help. Um, and, and as ever, knowledge is power, especially if like me, you don't get huge deals out the gate and you have to kind of build this career from the bottom up over like 20 years. You know, you start with your $7,000 advance and you work your way up. Um, your greatest love it, leverage is still obviously writing an excellent book that multiple publishers want. So they fight over it. And knowing your numbers and saying no to lowball offers. Weirdly, uh, I have found that saying no sometimes makes you more desirable. Um, I'm waiting on some paperwork for some stuff, but it's like I said no um, several times to an offer until I got what I felt that I... I got what I felt, again, I deserved or that my work was worth. Um and it's oh that's always weird to me, <laughs> but but saying no, it's like yeah, it 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 makes you it's weird. It's those weird cultural things that I never understand and and is problematic. But hey, can work in your favor. Um, so hold out and and get what you're worth if you possibly can. <laughs> um, and again, I think that that will help with some of these. Um, you know. The thing with lowball advances, again, and going back to that, is just you've got to have multiple offers. You have got to write a book that everyone wants so badly. Um, that's the, really the only leverage that we have, that in our numbers, and just saying no. Um, and again, self-publishing, if, if you have to, kickstarting, you know, doing what you like. Um, but know that, again, why we don't have as much leverage is because they just, they really just want, you know, hey, Michelle Obama's book. Hey, um, Susan Streisand's book. I mean, they, they want the big sellers. Um, and for those of us kind of in the middle, that tough middle ground, um, it's definitely more, more challenging to work our way up to like, you know, superstar celebrity book, YouTube star book. <laughs> I feel like, you know, because some of us kind of came, came into this, uh, straight instead of being like, oh, we should have just been a YouTube or Instagram sensation first and then sold a novel, but them's the breaks. All right. Uh, on Twitter, Marcella Haddad asked what to keep track of for, for taxes as a writer, how to do the math, and how much time a short story takes, what you sell it for. Um, the best advice uh, I have for taxes is just to put 30% of every check into savings. I'd like to tell you that I do that all the time. Ha <laughs> ha. But I don't. That's just a best practice that you all should do that I should do too, but which I don't. As far as the math on how long a short story takes, um, these days I probably put in about 10 to 20 hours on a short story, depending. And I include research and outlining and stuff in that. Um, and I deliver all of that to all those short stories to Patreon first, because frankly, even spending just like 10 hours on a story and selling it for a hundred dollars, which is a lot uh, of what the going rate is for fiction these days. Again, that's like 10 bucks an hour. 
Um, and remember, I charge 100 an hour for freelancing, so it's like cost-benefit. Um, short story writing is just not super lucrative. It just isn't. Um, my best advice for short fiction is to just make sure you're submitting um, submitting for original rights as well as reprint rights. Remember, that you, and, and audio rights. Like Sometimes you can sell it like three times. Um, and then also keep it for a future short, short story collection. A lot of these markets say, hey, you know, we want this exclusively for one year. And then after that, you can then put it up online for yourself. So um, maximize how much you're getting out of that short story. And again, long-term thinking, hey, um, you know, throw it, throw it up online. Um, remember it when people are, you know, movie people come around. Try, always, always be hustling, you know, put that together into a short fiction collection when you have enough of them and put that up in line or, or um, sell it to um, a publisher. Um, a lot of people don't take full advantage of a piece of fiction. They, they sell it once and they forget about it. But there are all sorts of ways that you can keep making money on these. So make sure that um, you're exploiting all those, those different ways. Uh, let's see. So David Earle asked... Uh, tips on tracking sales and income from various sources would be helpful. It would, wouldn't it, David? <laughs> it would. Uh, I, I wish I had these. I think uh, Tobias Buckle has a great spreadsheet online that he uses to track income sources. And Rose Eveleth does, I think, for freelancing. But I've tried both of their spreadsheets and I just, I suck at it. I don't I don't like administrative work, which is why I have an assistant to do some of the things that um, I put off forever <laughs> that, that don't take long, but I, I put them off because I hate administrative stuff, um, which is actually super um, ironic because I, I worked as an administrative assistant for a long time. But um, my agent actually does have one for tracking on my various payments. So um, for all of that kind of shit, like she her agency and, and has all that. So if I never want it, she's like, Oh, if you ever want that, just let me know. That helps her keep track of, you know, again, what I'm owed. Um, but for freelancing now I don't, which is stupid because what happens with a lot of these, you turn something in and it'll be six months and no one will send you a check. And sometimes you can forget about that and you can forget to, you know, um, track it down if it's like a $50 or something. I like a lot of these places now that are paying, um, in via PayPal because it's, very, I, I, you tend to get them very quickly. And then there's a record of like, you know, what, what came and, and when. So, um, again, I, I've started a spreadsheet. I just, I never updated it, but you all should <laughs> either do it yourself or maybe ask, you know, a spouse or get an assistant or something, because, um, it really is, uh, the best if, if you can figure it out. All right. So now that we have, talked quite a bit about money. My goodness. I, I had a lot to say. I did want to talk about how to hack your habits, especially here. We're getting toward the end of the year and it's a good time to sort of, um, evaluate what has come before. And my biggest life hack recently has been figuring out how to retool my writing and getting shit done after a lot of burnout and the world exploding and ongoing concerns about death and dying and healthcare. My healthcare um, premiums only went up 12% this year. Huzzah. So I'm only out a few hundred more dollars this year instead of several thousand like last year. So, you know, woo, go America. 
mortality is like a heavy thing, folks. Uh, and creating while you're constantly concerned about like nuclear war or losing access to life-giving drugs is super exhausting. <laughs> super exhausting. And I found myself getting into super bad habits like, hey, it was a good day. I should have a drink and watch Netflix. Hey, it was a bad day. I should have a drink and watch Netflix. Hey, I had some drinks, so maybe I should just sleep in. Oh, got to go to the day job now. And suddenly I found that all the time in the mornings and evenings when I would usually write were being eaten up with these bad, lazy habits. Um, Twitter is another terrible habit. It replaces another site for me that was called StumbleUpon. I guess it still exists, but I used to dive in that, into that back at work in like the early 2000s. It was a great way to waste a ton of time and get nothing done. And you just click a button and get a random website. You'll get like the rat with the, with the button. Uh, and with Twitter, you don't even have to refresh. You just, you know, give a click and that shit just opens up with all the hundreds of tweets about whatever rage or horror or cute doggo meme of the day is hot. Um, worse though, um, is that Twitter often gives me the illusion that I'm doing something and, you know, you RT something, um, and you respond to, to someone and, Hey, I'm chatting and making connections and interacting with fans, getting informed. Woo. Look what I did today. But of course, when I sat down and analyzed where all my time was going, Twitter was the biggest culprit, particularly during work hours. When you finish a piece of work and it's easy to just say, okay, five minutes on Twitter as a reward and then it sucks your life away. So um, in reading about habits, there is this habit busting formula. One, one quick trick, one weird trick. Uh, and it's really helped me. First, it's you want to sit down and figure out like what your cue is for this behavior you want to change. So you identify the cue, then the habit itself, and then the reward that you are getting for this habit. So for me, the cue to switch over to Twitter was when I was bored or seeking connection or as a reward for finishing a grueling bit of work. And the action, that habit, was switching to Twitter. The reward was that I felt like I was doing something. You know, again, it's about connection, about feeling informed. The trouble was that, you know, more often than not these days, Twitter was making me feel less rewarded and more existential dread. <laughs> but still, because I hadn't changed how I reacted to this cue, it didn't matter that the reward now sucked. I was locked in, right? Um, so how do we change that habit? Well, we change the habit by changing how we respond to the cue. So one thing I've been wanting to do is to get more reading in. So when I feel my cue right? That urge to take a break, to connect, to be more informed. I open up my Kindle cloud reader instead of Twitter. So I'm changing that habit. It's a very similar one, right? I'm opening up a separate program, but it's different. So this is something I can open anytime on my phone, my desktop, at work, laptop, just like Twitter. And it, it doesn't rot my brain and make me feel bad afterwards unless I'm reading a really depressing book. So my reward is about the same, right? Again, the cue and the reward are the same. I get to feel informed, I'm reading books, I can share and talk about with others, and I get a nice break for finishing, you know, some work pieces. Now, this doesn't mean I'm cured of Twitter by any means. I still check in more than I should, usually in the morning uh, and afternoon, and I'd like to cut that down to like once a day. Wouldn't that be great? Um, and to do that, I made you to replace kind of these check-ins with something else that feels like I'm being informed 
um, maybe reading a news site or a journal article or something. Um, since the cues to kind of check in with Twitter sometimes uh, are kind of like, hey, is the world currently on fire? And if yes, because it always is, what is the current crisis? Um, which I don't know that I need to check in on three times a day, for real. Um, truthfully, again, it probably doesn't fucking matter what the latest crisis is. Aside from voting and calling my senators, um, there's not a whole lot more to do at this point, except like chain myself to a building. And that doesn't get a lot of writing done. So, um, and of course, the, the trap of Twitter is that feeling that subjecting yourself to all these terrible emotions is actually getting work done, and, and it's not. So, I also recently deleted, uh, not, well, not recently, I guess, um, deleted my Facebook fan page. I had deleted my personal page back in 2012, and finally ditching the fan page was possible because I no longer needed an account in order to manage client social media stuff. Um, and losing it, to be dead honest, felt really great. And I've been spending more time on Instagram lately. Uh, and honestly, I'm kind of thinking about doing more long-form blogging again. Because these types of quick-hit rage machine media channels, um, they, they aren't very healthy for us. And I, for one, would like more of my brain back so I can create real work instead of just being a Twitter-consuming machine. <laughs> um... It's interesting how we live in a society that basically runs on how much human attention can be spent on a particular product or service or platform. And we create all these conveniences to give us more free time, right? Washing machines, takeout meals. But instead of using that to create stuff, we're like pressured into using it to consume, right? To consume food, to consume media, to consume products, um, and I'm not sure where that was going, uh, except that you shouldn't feel bad to leave a place that's sucking your energy away and, and not giving you anything back. I, I do feel a lot of these social platforms are like bad relationships. You know, we've invested so much in them that the idea of walking away is physically painful. But if there are no longer positive relationships, maybe it's time to move on, right? Yeah, yeah. All right, so let's let's wind this one up with some book recommendations. I, I have been consuming a ton of books lately, some Scandinavian mysteries, none of which are probably good enough to recommend, but also some science fiction and fantasy books that are coming out. Um, there is a great one called Salvation Day by uh, Callie Wallace that everyone should read. Um, it is a little space mystery with a group of radical separatists foolishly deciding to capture a ship that's been in quarantine for a decade because, well, everyone on board died of a terrible disease. Um, and it's, that was a really great one. Um, also, Gideon the Ninth by Tamsin Murr. I think that's out next year. And it's probably the batshit standout of the bunch. I, uh, again, like, Salvation Day is wonderfully structured. All great. But Gideon the Ninth is fucking batshit. And you know how much I love that. And I, this was my blurb for it. I said, it's punchy, crunchy, gooey, and gore smeared. Gideon the Ninth is a pulpy science fantasy romp that will delight and horrify you to the bitter end. Um, this is the actually the, the lesbian necromancers in space book um, that was acquired by Carl Inger Laird at Tor.com. So um, lesbian necromancers, Gideon the Ninth. It's pretty great. Uh, also on the fantasy side, there is uh, a lush, twisty um, epic from K.S. Uh, Veloso called The Wolf of Orin Yarrow. 
Um, she actually just recently signed up with my agent. So of course I had to check out her work. Uh, and that one has been uh, very engrossing so far. I know my agent has good taste, obviously, obviously. So uh, I did check that out. And then of course on the nonfiction side, again, speaking about the, that uh, Q um, habit reward, uh, you will want to check out um, The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg, D-U-H-I-G-G. Um, very, very good uh, and, and will probably help you quite a bit um, with if you want to unfuck your habits. So, And also, of course, if your career goal is not just to make money, but to create exceptional work that lasts, uh, I, I do recommend um, Ryan Holiday's book, Perennial Bestseller, which basically just argues that you need to be brilliant every day. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. What else? Oh, yes. There's a um, great book uh, by Barbara Avonreich. Basically, I, I recommend everything by her, but it's called Natural Causes. And, you know, as I get older, I, I do find myself less than impressed with both the state of healthcare in the U.S. and our relentless pursuit of immortality because, you know, we, we aren't going to live forever. And... Um, she, she talks a ton about the American obsession with good health uh, and, and positivity uh, in, that, in that book, Natural Causes. And it's, it's really fascinating to kind of take a, a gander um, at how some of that, that cultural bullshit is formed. Also, if you haven't, again, I, I'm sure I've recommended this book to tons of people before, but she read another one um, about the origins of war and early human culture that will totally upend everything you think you know. Um, I highly, highly, highly encourage you to check out Blood Rights, um, again, by Iron Reich. Um, it completely changed how I viewed the shit I was taught about, like, the natural or assumed order of human societies. And it really helped set me on a path, really, that, I, that, that exposed me to just how wild and wonderful and, like, massively diverse our cultures have been over the, you know, quarter million years or so that humans with uh, brains like ours have been trundling about. Spoilers, our current society is the weird outlier. It's not the normal, not by a long shot. So, all right, folks, until next time, you all take care of yourselves, believe in your worth, unfuck your habits, and above all, get back to work.